This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio, joined live with Robert Nicholson, the founder and executive director of the Philos Project. Robert holds a BA in Hebrew Studies from Binghamton University and a JD and MA in Near Eastern History from Syracuse University, where he calls home. A former U.S. Marine and 2012-2013 Tikva fellow, Robert founded the Philos Project in 2014. His and his organization's advocacy focuses on spreading the vision of a multi-ethnic and multi-religious Near East based on freedom and rule of law. He also serves on the board of directors of Passages and as a publisher of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. He's written in multiple publications, and we are glad to welcome him to Middle East Forum Radio today. Robert, good morning. Good morning, Greg. Thanks uh, for having me. Of course, and thank you for joining us. This is the first in a series of interviews with individuals that I've come to admire through my work in the Middle East. Robert being someone who I've seen from afar and seen the progress of his organization as Christian Zionism and its advocacy for Middle Eastern freedom, especially those Christian minorities in countries beyond Israel's borders, but still close to the heart of Jerusalem, have been able to receive an advocate in the United States in the form of the Philos Project. Robert, tell us about your personal journey. How did you come to form Phylos? What is Phylos? And what does the organization do? Well, thank you for that question. That's a good place to start. So I was born into a Christian family, a Catholic family. I was baptized Catholic um, and grew up, I was born in Los Angeles, grew up in upstate New York. But uh, myself was never really connected to the Middle East um, and personally had a lot of problems with my parents' religion, Christianity. So I kind of rejected all of that and set out on my own journey. That took me through junior high, high school, joined the Marine Corps, enlisted there, served in the aviation side of the Marines. I was stationed out in Hawaii. This was in 1999, so there were worse things in the world. Um, and left the Marines, sort of worked jobs like most people do and felt like life wasn't going anywhere and had run into some rough patches and began to think more carefully about religion. And this was in the early 2000s when everybody was thinking about religion. Uh, after 9-11, the invasion of the Iraq war, it was a very apocalyptic time. And I, I, I approached it very academically, you know, and started reading uh, the Bible um, just out of curiosity and really just got drawn into it. And from there, as I sought to learn more and more about it, began to learn more about the Jewish people who had written it. I began to study Hebrew, began to study the region from which this Bible came from, and just was kind of drawn in, in a massive way. And it wasn't until maybe it was over a decade later that I actually started the Philos Project. And uh, yet, really what Philos is in, a, in an unofficial way is, is my attempt to recreate that spiritual journey going from a place of ignorance in the West all the way back East to where it all got started. And then to try to apply that experience or that realization in practical ways. Philos is, is a Greek word that means friend. And in thinking about the kind of the philosophy behind what I was doing, I realized that a lot of what I'm trying to do, it's, it's, you know, to say that it's religious or say it's political is really to, to complicate it in a way that's unhelpful. And um, really what needs to be done, I think in a lot of ways is create friendship. And the word friend is uh, the way that we sort of nod to that, trying to build values-based friendships um, in between these two civilizations, you know, people who are like-minded, 
who believe in pluralism, who believe in strong bonds between East and West. Those are the friends that, that we look for and that we want to support in the region. So what are some of the activities that Philos engages with to be able to implement and execute its mission? So the real, you know, we do a lot of things with the Philos project. It's an umbrella that encompasses uh, immersive travel. We take people on trips to the region, journalists, uh, policymakers, church leaders. It encompasses education. We have a lot of ideas and content related material. Uh, it also encompasses kind of a network or community function. We have different chapters and cities uh, around North America. We also do events and things like that. But none of those things by themselves are really what Philos is about. At the end of the day, Philos is about creating a new generation of leaders who will go into this space, this Middle East space, and um, try to make a difference. And so what we do with these trips and this content and all these other things is try to form leaders. And we really focused on um, the young professional category, people in their, their 20s, their early 30s, people who are coming out of college, beginning to figure out um, what it is exactly that they're going to do after the, after the classroom. And we try to not only to train them for those positions, but even where we can try to help them get those positions through the relationships that we have. And so our hope is over the next five or 10 years to really see young Philos leaders in positions of influence, you know, having jobs like yours or in the State Department or the DOD or in, or in church denominations, wherever uh, the Middle East is being discussed, we want a Philos leader there. So there's a kind of a meta function, right? We're not necessarily lobbying directly, at least not always. We do some of that, but trying to create the people who will lobby uh, for the things that we think are important. And, and you've been able to diversify, like you said before, into sort of a, um, a network, if you will, of let's call it a meta influence. Not right now, but you're trying to inculcate and trying to uh, address the educational needs of the next generation of individual Christians who are interested in, let's say, the national security space, the policymaking space, even those who are active in philanthropy, to offer the Philos point of view in American uh, public policy decision making, depending on, on where the uh, the actual form is. Uh, is there a policy agenda for Philos? Uh, it is. It is fluid. I'll put it that way. It, okay. it, it, you know, it encompasses the whole region uh, and lots of different issues. And so it uh, it kind of moves within the, the policy space with more of a thought leadership role or, or a relational role rather than something that's very explicit and defined. Obviously, there are some things that are extra important to us, the uh, security of Israel, the Jewish state, uh, the security, safety, prosperity of uh, Christian and other non-Muslim minority communities in the region in general, uh, religious freedom, freedom of conscience, pluralism. Um, and there are cases, there are specific regional issues, uh, maybe we'll come to some of them uh, here before the conversation is over, like Lebanon in Israel. Uh, that we take special interest in because it it lies at the convergence of of some of our different issues. So we we don't have a kind of a, a statement of all of our policy uh, points, but we do take them as they go. Under understood, and then you know sometimes you get to these policy points where I mean, if we're talking about Lebanon and Israel. 
on one hand, you have a um, very, very strong U.S.-Israel relationship, which is multi-denominational. You have Christian interests. You have uh, Jewish interests. Might I even argue there's a Muslim interest in having a strong Israel? Mm. And that's on sort of the U.S. side of the table. But then when we have to talk about um, defending minority communities in Lebanon, in this case, I guess we're speaking about the Maronites. Um, yeah. There's also a unique political situation where you have a, a Christian community in Lebanon, which is sort of split. Right. And, and mm-hmm. it's purely for domestic means, because, you know, we're not talking about Israel here, U.S. national security policy. But in in Lebanon. You're either for the Hezbollah government or you're against the Hezbollah government. Mm. And yes, there's Mm. this area in the middle. But how do you as an organization back here in the States educate lawmakers that uh, and policymakers for that, uh, that that there is a difference that, you know, you are sort of forced between choosing for one or the other. And then the the fate of your potential church or your faith based communities dependent on that choice. How do you guys like deal with those tensions? Yeah, well, that's a that's a great question. Uh, it's a long answer. I'll, I'll make it simple. We there, we sort of take different cracks at it, right? So we will do things like travel. You know, we'll we'll work on trying to to bring people from our network to Lebanon to speak to, to people there to influence them to let them know how the U.S. is looking at this situation and to and to do sort of a soft lobby uh, in that sense. We also you know, me, myself, personally, I just maintain lots of relationships and try to move things wherever I can. Um, I think, you know, we also have a, a task force that's dedicated specifically to this this issue. I think the big the big problem that a lot of people have when it comes to these two countries, and it's actually symbolic for the problem that people have with the rest of the region, is that they don't look at it very deeply. They don't look at it historically. They don't look at it culturally. Lebanon for not even just the average man on the street, but I mean, even a, a policymaker, a politician is just a black box. You know, it's some Arab country. It's on Israel's border. There's tension between the two countries. But hey, who's why should we be surprised? Because Arabs hate Jews and Jews hate Arabs and forever it was and forever it shall be. And no one bothers to really understand you know, what is Lebanon? Where did it come from? Why was it founded? Um, what is it? Who who lives in this state? What are the differences, as you mentioned, between uh, different political platforms? And really what once you understand that what you said is accurate, meaning there are a large chunk uh, of people inside Lebanon who are against Hezbollah, who are against Iran, then you understand that the task is to try to you know, drive a wedge essentially, you know, between these two sides and to help American policymakers understand there are good guys there, number one, and number two, how they can support them in ways that don't exacerbate the situation. So there's like a, there's like an educational aspect to our lobbying, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, are you trying in in other words to cultivate an anti-Hezbollah, um, or let's not call it that because I don't think that that's like being too myopic, right? It's being too narrow. Are you trying to cultivate an anti-Iran, Iranian Shia extremist umbrella within Lebanon's Christian community that then can be an ally of the U.S. in its efforts to eject Iranian Shia extremist influence from Lebanon? And then the byproduct of that is maybe making them a stronger block against Hezbollah, weaken Iran, strengthening Maronite Christian minority groups. 
Yeah, you you could say you could say that. I would probably describe it somewhat differently, just to maybe make it sound more positive. But also, of course, I'm, I'm not one for true. the branding. I'm the analyst here, you know. <laughs> not well, I think you know people spend. who understand the history of Lebanon understand that it's actually very similar to Israel insofar as it was founded for a very specific purpose, meaning the Christians of that mountain, Mount Lebanon, were looking to the French for. I mean, basically the Balfour Declaration uh, for them uh, that the British gave to the Jews and the French gave it. And in 1920, actually, 100 years ago, almost exactly, this whole project got started. And while the territory was expanded to include uh, Shia and Sunni Muslims, the real sort of point of Lebanon was to provide a safe haven for Christians uh, in the region, even as these new uh, Arab states began to get set up. And and yet, uh, very few people know that, you know, very few, few people understand that Lebanon is the closest thing to a Christian country in the Middle East. So what we're trying to do, yes, for sure, it's, it's uh, opposed to Iranian influence in the country by means of Hezbollah, but it's really just trying to make Lebanon get back to its founding purpose to protect these Christians, to protect everybody who lives in the country and get rid of these foreign influences. There was success in 2005 pushing out the Syrians, but the Iranians just remain this, uh, you know, constant presence in the country and somebody's got to do something about it. Bold action is needed ASAP. So is that kind of bold action like um, trying to weaken uh, Hezbollah supported Institutions. I mean, I mean, if we look at it now, Hezbollah has basically taken over the government in Lebanon. So, by mm-hmm. extension, would that logic of doing something drastic mean cutting aid to the Lebanese army? Well, that's. I mean, that's one of the big questions right now, right? There's, there's essentially two camps, as you know. One says, no, we have to save Lebanon. We have to pump more money into the LAF, the Lebanese Armed Forces and the state to make sure that this this whole project survives. And the other camp says that's the exact, we should not give them any money and let the whole thing collapse. It's the only way you're going to get rid of Iran. I can't, I have to say that they're both pretty compelling arguments, you know, and it's even, as, even though I probably lean more toward the um, let it, let it fail. I, really, I'm 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 worried. Uh, what? Well, yeah, I, I mean, we could get into that, but I'm worried that obviously about the human cost of that, right? You can't just say that in a cavalier way if you care about the people of Lebanon, which I, which I do. My my concern is that that bold action so far within Lebanon is non-existent. You know, there are a lot of good people in Lebanon who would share our worldview, many, many, probably more than 50%, but no one, no one's willing to uh, put their life on the line or not enough people in order to dislodge this foreign entity from the state's politics. You know, you have a UN force there, UNIFIL, uh, also seems unable to dislodge Hezbollah, the U.S. really hasn't done all that much. I think the Israelis even, you know, they they'll cross the border and and mow the grass, so to speak, to keep things in check, you know, bombing weapons depots and all of that. But they, you know, even they know that 
like there's there's a lot to be lost by going in and just you know raising everything to the ground so what do you do you know if no one's willing to act and yet we all know what the problem is how do you how do you stop this how do you stop the problem and so that's where these people come in and say look just let the whole thing collapse the more you know this lebanon has stage three cancer essentially and if you give it aspirin all you're going to do is fool the body into thinking everything's okay if you give them money you're actually propping them up right you're giving them cpr it's better just to let let it die and then protect what needs to be protected and prepare for another day now i don't go that far but i understand the argument and i think there's something about it that's compelling and if you buy it it actually will change your strategy then it becomes less about you know, how do we prop this thing up to how do we protect what's most important inside the country in the event of collapse so that it can rebuild on better foundations the day after? It's a very, very hard question. I understand. And, and you know, the, the beautiful thing here is you're, you're saying this and I'm typing away trying to figure out, you know, what um, some of the other issues dealing with Hezbollah and with um, the, the situation of Christians in the country and in preparation for this interview today. Um, we looked at some of the things that you've written in the past, and this is, uh, I think that it looks like your, your position's evolved. There's an article that you wrote in Newsweek in September of 2017, a fascinating perspective by Robert Nicholson talking about the tension within Lebanon and how it may require a, um, what I, I, Robert, I wouldn't say that you're, you're advocating for a uh, complete, you know, massive shakeup in Lebanon, but it might be getting close to that situation. Um, am I right. correct with that? Yeah, it's it's not, and this is this is important I'm, to, to to state. I'm glad you uh, came back to it. You know, I think the the wrong way to think about this is to say let Lebanon collapse, right? That's it's inhumane and it's right. ill thought out. But to to recognize, as I do, that it's very possible. In fact, maybe even likely that this regime will collapse, not because you know, we or or anyone else does anything to it, just be the, the combined pressure of economics, of politics, of Hezbollah's amassing of more and more weapons and more sophisticated weapons, it, it just will implode. And to and, and to take this path says, look, it's probably going to happen, if not sooner than later. Are we prepared for that moment? Or will this just be a failed state? And again, if you care about uh, minority rights in the Middle East, and particularly of Christian rights, that's a, a pretty fearsome scenario. So I think that it's it's not uh, it's not for lack of concern for the Lebanese that one says, let's think about the possibility of collapse. And that's that's where I'm at. Is that we can't you know for because of our own wishful thinking pretend like this is not a possibility. On the contrary, we have to we have to be ready for it and think about what would that mean for for the country. Right. And this is a, a very different situation three years later versus when that article you wrote came out. I finally got the title. It was uh, Israel and Lebanon, a, a path to peace led by Trump. Mm -hmm. And um, just in the last three years, I mean, look at everything that's happened. The guy who was responsible for Iranian influence in Lebanon is no longer with us. Mm -hmm. But um, the problems are still there. You, you wrote back then uh, with Nassif. The problem is that Hezbollah's opponents inside Lebanon receive little backing from forces outside Lebanon. Neither Aoun, Mike Michel Aoun, the president of Lebanon, nor the Lebanese armed forces are powerful enough to disarm Hezbollah on their own. 
It is likely, however, that dedicated assistance from allies outside the country would embolden them and bring their opposition to Iranian influence to new levels. Currently, the United States supplies arms and training to the LAF, the Lebanese Armed Forces, but in order to strengthen a state, that assistance needs to be substantially increased. The LAF is the most stabilizing force in the country and remains neutral in the country's sectarian squabbles, making it a natural starting point for the level of support and engagement needed for Lebanon. It sounds like now that Hezbollah has taken over, has that ship sailed? I, I think you're right that my, my positions evolved a bit. Uh, 2017, even though it was just a few years ago, was it just was a different situation. Since then, Hezbollah has gone on, as you said, to acquire even more influence. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little more pessimistic uh, today than I was then. And it is ironic, as you mentioned, that this all comes after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard commander. I think we all... Uh, expected that some of these things would get a little bit better, but it's been a few months now and, and things seem uh, to persist. And I, you know, just to the point about American leadership, you know, you, you mentioned the article's title included led by Trump. Right. I think right. that I think Trump and the U S in general has a really important role to play and should step into this space with all of the, kind of all of the, the muscle and the energy that lies between or lies within our Near East Policy Bureau um, and make this the centerpiece of our work in the region. I think for me, it's I think we've seen that we're getting diminishing returns from our uh, engagement with some places more far afield, like in Iraq is the obvious example. But you can name any number of countries in the Middle East where America either has been ineffective or doesn't have the political will to stay involved long enough to actually change things. I think Israel present unique exceptions in America's engagement with the Near East because you know, it, it cannot help but be true that a Jewish state and you know a quasi-Christian state would resonate for America, you know, a country founded on Judeo-Christian principles, more than, say, the civil war in Yemen or, you know, what's happening in the Gulf. There's something about these two countries that that should make us do more there. Right. And I think we have we have the ability to do more there. I think we have more friends in these countries. And Israel obviously is an easy one. The vast majority of Americans are supportive of our work there. But I think um, the, the people haven't been educated or the policymakers or some combination of both to see that Lebanon is more or less the same thing. And by the way, all of our regional interests converge there, right? Our support for Israel on Lebanon's border, our concern for energy in the region. And you've seen the discovery of natural gas deposits offshore in Lebanon, the Sunni Shi'i conflict, the Iranian influence uh, the whole cause of religious freedom peace coexistence all of it all of it is in lebanon and i would say to to um i would say wind down some of our extraneous engagement in some of these other countries where we're getting diminishing returns and focus on lebanon and i think given the proper amount of us investment not just in terms of money but in terms of influence and power the situation in Lebanon could be turned, absolutely could be. 
But so long as we're keeping this situation on kind of a low flame, it's not getting any better and it's actually getting kind of worse. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guy who calls for very robust U.S. engagement with Lebanon is just as much within our national interest as Israel. Right. And, and what that looks like is, I think, uh, up for debate, maybe maybe after we get uh, done with the coronavirus pandemic. And that's the point that I want to talk to uh, you about next after these messages. Welcome back to WWDB AM 860 here in Philadelphia with Robert Nicholson, the president of the Philos Project, speaking to us about Middle Eastern minority groups, the necessity for Americans to defend its interests in the Middle East, especially those of different faith-based communities, Lebanon, Israel, and other countries and topics we'll get back into now. So, Robert, we were just speaking about the uh, necessity, or, or you're advocating for the necessity of maybe the U.S. doubling down in Lebanon, uh, perhaps even at the expense of some of its other foreign policy forays in the region, which have not produced results. But I'd like to take this moment to pivot for a second to a more humanitarian topic, which is the role of the United States in helping the Middle East overcome the coronavirus. Um, we have seen devastating drops in oil prices. We have seen the U.S. somewhat limited in its uh, outreach to bases in Lebanon, not in Lebanon, in the Middle East. I mean, it's kind of confined to Qatar. It's confined to the UAE. We've seen an uptick in Iranian aggression in the Gulf. Uh, is there a special need for the U.S. to intervene in any Middle Eastern country, even with these disaffected minority groups who may be suffering disproportionately to the majorities in the Middle East because of the coronavirus pandemic? Are you seeing anything different now than before this virus started, especially how it's affecting minority groups? Well, that's a good question. And, and you know, I have to say that as much as we've been trying as an organization to follow this and to figure out how exactly it's affecting each group, you know, not only each country, but each each sort of group within each country, especially those of minorities, it's it's very unclear. Um, the, you know, the coronavirus has us all in disarray, right? And so it's it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what's going on. And I think that no one has in any kind of systematic way assessed what all of the needs are. I think, you know, we were just talking about Lebanon. You see in some countries like Lebanon, where the coronavirus uh, pandemic has just added fuel to an already raging fire. I think maybe Lebanon would be the, the clearest example of a place where the U.S. should use the COVID moment to, to be a little bit more uh, involved, uh, just because the, the conditions already before the pandemic were so precarious. But there there are other places as well. Obviously, you have uh, thousands of uh, minorities, Yazidis and Christians who are still living either in uh, special refugee camps just for them or more likely scattered in in the slums of various cities across uh, the Middle East. And no one exactly knows what their needs are. Do they have coronavirus? Do they not? They belong to different churches. So while their church leaders may know, Lots of the church leaders are not talking to each other. So it's a very, it's, there's a lot of unknowns here. But I do think that in, in the broad picture, the U.S. should use this moment to reaffirm its commitment to the region. Now, I, I think that overall, as a country, we need to do a better job of leveraging our 
our aid, right? We do these things all the time, all over the world where we, you know, some hurricane comes or an earthquake uh, or even preventative situations where we're trying to raise levels of education and literacy and healthcare. But I don't think we do a, we do a very good job of trying to use those things to achieve our policy goals. And I, and I think before we do a cannonball in the COVID pool, uh, you know, just say, let's, you know, let's really pull out all the stops and, and go out there and, and help people. We need to figure out what it is that we are trying to accomplish and then try to match up that assistance to those ends. Again, Lebanon's a great example. I think Egypt could be a good place to get involved more with COVID. But beyond that, I, it's it's still so early. It's hard to tell where we should go from here. So that's as it relates to the Middle East. But let's focus back on the United States for a second. I'd like to go back to the Philos project and some of its um, different, uh, I want to call it appendages. I'd call it uh, sister organizations or um, uh, partners who are involved in this effort, uh, specifically as it relates to uh, Israel and also the wider Middle East issue. Uh, would you guys categorize yourselves as being a, a pro-Israel organization or as a Zionist organization, or are you more a um, wider regional-focused organization? I mean, how do you guys go about defining yourselves? Yeah, we're we're regional. Uh, we say we talk about the Near East. Um, I think I could go on a whole uh, speech here about the Near East and even why the the title Near East is is important or at least signifies something uh, unique about certain parts of the of the region that are especially connected or special to the West and, and therefore merit deeper engagement. Again, Lebanon and Israel are perfect examples. Um, but even though we are regionally focused, Near East focused, we're, yes, we're, we're pro-Israel, if that means supporting, you know, the the right of Israel to exist and be secure. Um, Zionist, yes, if Zionism means, you know, uh, Jewish nationalism and, and nothing more. I think sometimes right. the, when I the, say, you're, you're going to see why I'm bringing this up in the next question. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, there's, obviously it's a loaded term, but uh, yeah, course. very much. I actually would you go even further than that. I think that Israel as a, as a project, meaning this national movement of the Jewish people to reestablish its, its sovereignty is perhaps the the best thing that's happened to this region in the last hundred years. And I think that it serves as a catalyst. It serves as a model, even in some cases, for what could happen in other parts of the region. You know, Israel is in some sense, a, at least for, for an American or for a Westerner, it's a gateway to the region, right? It's because Christianity came from there and because Jerusalem's there, people sort of look at Israel in a different way than all those other places. And I think that presents a unique uh, gateway for people outside to engage with the region as a whole. So it's, it's not the region on one hand, you know, Israel on the other, it's how can we use Israel as that doorway, that portal to get Americans to care about Israel's neighbors and all of these other groups that we're talking about. Right. So it's sort of the uh, the gateway into that larger conversation about the Near East that you had just mm -hmm. mentioned. But I want to look at some of the, uh, I don't want to call it internecine disagreements 
uh, within the American Christian community as it relates to Israel. But if we could just briefly map the um, would you guys consider yourselves to be a um, multi-denominational Christian organization or is yes. it evangelical or Protestant or Catholic? How, how, how is it in terms of the denominational definition? Yeah, so we're, we're non-sectarian. Our baseline okay. is the Nicene Creed. For those of you who know, it's the fourth century <laughs> kind of statement of faith of the church. But we have on our staff and among our fellows, we have the whole gamut, you know, not even just Catholic and Protestant, but these Eastern churches that are neither Catholic nor Protestant. And we try to try to create, and that's one of the things I wanted to do with Philos was to say that, yes, there are many evangelicals who talk about Israel and the region, but this, this isn't only an evangelical party, you know, anybody who kind of subscribes to the broad package of Christianity uh, should find this region uniquely important to them and should commit to, to be engaged with it. And how does this differentiate with, let's say, an organization like KUFI, uh, Christians United for Israel and Pastor John Hagee, or um, Eagles Wings and uh, Pastor Robert Stearns in, in, in New York, south of you in Buffalo? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the difference between those organizations, which uh, I guess self-define as pro-Israel Christian organizations, and Philos? And because what I've seen is, is you guys, you have a journal. There's a, a think tank that you're involved with. You guys are in D.C. Um, you, you you are now bringing American Christians to Israel on this passages program. Seems like it's mm-hmm. very diversified. What's what's the difference? Yeah, well, I think that's one. We have just a, a lot of different components, right? Like some of those organizations will take trips, and some of them will do. Uh, I don't know. I guess you call them kind of rallies for. Right. for Israel. So structurally, I think we're, we're very different in that we have trips, but also events and content. There's just a much broader range of activities, but even I think philosophically you'll, you'll find a difference and, and probably the mo- more important difference. And it's, it's really, it's less a difference of ends and more a difference of means. So if I understand Kufi and Eagle's wings correctly, they, support more or less what I just said a few minutes ago about the right of Israel to exist and security uh, next to its neighbors. Right. Um, but, but they go about it a very different way. You know, it depends on which organization you look at, but the organizations you're talking about usually have a very specific, um, I, I guess you could say a theological proposition, right? That there is very clear, a list of verses, a very clear list of doctrines that this is uh, a dispensationalist Christianity. Yeah, not not only, but yes, primarily uh, that that requires you as a Christian to support this state for religious reasons, right? And if you don't, then you are ipso facto, you know, against God. Now, Philos does not look at things that way. There are people in our network who see Israel as holding theological significance. There are people in our network who absolutely 100% think Israel is theologically insignificant, but still for kind of historical and cultural reasons, think there's a moral justification for, for caring about Israel. So, you know, I sometimes say that when it comes to Israel, even though that's not our only issue, there's lots of, um, 
on ramps to the highway, right? And people take <laughs> Tell me about ramps, and I don't really care that much which on ramp you take as long as you're on the highway. That's just fine with me. Everyone has their own narrative and their own story about their Israel oriented engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as, like you said, they're in the right direction, then everybody can join up and together. Uh, how, how does that mesh, though, with organizations that um, claim to have a Christian character? Um, for instance, Churches for Middle East Peace and May Cannon. She's been popping up on my radar, not my radar, my Twitter feed for the last little while just because of some of her work. Um, and and what seems to be a lot of activity. Um, also, you have um, the Telos program. Um, you have uh, uh, um, uh, what's it called? The uh, the the mainline Protestant. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to forget what it is now. But mainline Protestant churches, which often have these conventions about boycotting Israel. I mean, all of that and together. How do you reconcile that there is this uh, non-sectarian, multi-denomination, uh, multi-denominational Nicene Creed agreeing group called Philos? Mm. And you guys are very, very on the uh, in favor of the U.S.'s relationship side. But then there are other, um, I don't want to say other churches, but other streams of thought regarding the U.S.-Israel relationship, uh, the status of Palestinian Christians that come out on the exact opposite side of what we're talking about right now. How do you Mm -hmm. reconcile those two things? Well, it's really, it reflects a, a, essentially a long tradition of disagreement within Christianity about the Jewish people and where they fit. You know, Jesus comes up until the point when Jesus comes, the Jews are God's chosen people, right? This is what is written in the Bible. And yet the Jews, or let's say the majority of them, don't accept this person, Jesus. And for centuries and century after century, Christians have been trying to figure out what happened. Like, why did the Jews reject Jesus? And what does that mean for their place in God's economy, they sometimes call it? Are they, are they in? Are they still chosen? Or are they out? Are they still in some sense, the people of God, or has the church, the people who did believe Jesus, replaced Israel? And they call that replacement theology or supersession, that we we Christians have superseded the Jews, that they just have no role whatsoever in this story. And so it's it's not surprising that there are groups that take that approach. In fact, that has been, I would say, the majority approach for Christianity, for Christians for you know, almost 2,000 years when it comes to the Jewish question. Um, and I recognize that that's a, a valid Christian position. Um, the difference maybe between me and uh, somebody from Christians United for Israel on this point was would be that I wouldn't then call that person a heretic, right? I don't right, think it's, right. it makes them unchristian. Um, but I do think it makes them ahistorical. And I, that's kind of the common thread that I find among all of those different groups that you mentioned. And that kind of philosophy as a whole is it approaches the question of Israel ahistorically, aculturally, as if Christians and Jews have as much to do with each other as Christians and Burmese, right? That the Jews are not special. They're just like every other people. And in fact, maybe if they are special, they're uniquely. Uh, evil, right? Because they 
Jesus was theirs and they rejected him. There's like a special stain on the Jewish people um, that comes out in some of these arguments of these people, you know, why they uh, care so much about what is happening in a Jewish town in Judea or Samaria and not about the Syrian civil war that's raging, you know, a couple hours away is beyond me. Right. And the hypocrisy, and the, the hypocrisy is, is unbelievable. 100%. I mean, the reason I brought up Canon is because, um, are you familiar with May Cannon in Churches for Middle East Peace? Yeah, I, I know May. Yeah, I do. Okay. So not to, I don't know if you guys have a relationship, friendship or whatever. I don't want to impugn upon her character, but um, I was trying to gather some examples for this question. Um, and uh, I mean, even in, in these uh, uh, prayer meetings, which she has sometimes, they uh, bring Palestinian Christian leaders who are often... Um, known for invoking blood libel, anti-Semitic remarks, tropes, um, and it's 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 you know uh, the the one specific one that I'm looking at is a, is an individual named Mitri Rahab, who is uh, who was known mm-hmm. specifically for their anti-Semitic remarks on social media. If we if we go to Palestinian media watch an organization led by Itamar Marcus in uh, in, uh, in in Israel, he often profiles this individual. And um, I don't understand how they can reconcile bringing, uh, saying that they're for Middle East peace while at the same time making remarks themselves and then in addition inviting speakers who are known anti-Semites to address their gatherings and their conferences. It just, it, it mm. just befuddles me. Mm-hmm. No, I, you know, I don't know about that particular example, but it's, it's not uncommon at all to find people who preach peace and yet when you listen to their words are calling for ostracizing another group of people. And I've found even in this space, and I know many of these people in a personal capacity, um, that just interpersonally, they're, they're not the bridge builders that they sometimes pretend to be, right? It's every, they want to build bridges with everyone but me, because I think it's okay that the Jews have a country in their homeland. And even, you know, and I've made pretty aggressive efforts and this is something I've taken a lot of hits for from people who are part of the sort of so-called pro-Israel crowd is I actually seek these people out intentionally to say, listen, you know, reasonable people can disagree. I'm a pragmatic, a pragmatic person. And we should like sit down and talk about, you know, why are, why are you having this position? This is the love thy neighbor approach. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't, it doesn't really go anywhere, I think is, is the bottom line. And these people, you know, the, the, the rhetoric that they, that they put out there masks a, a pretty specific agenda, which is to, which is to undermine uh, the state of Israel. And they, you know, I don't, I don't think these people, you know, are, are looking for genocide of the Jews or throwing the Jews into the sea. It's not as it's not as insidious as that. But they, on the pretense of following Jesus, believe in this, you know, ooey gooey Christianity that makes makes no distinctions between anything. Right, everything's the same and everything's equally loved and appreciated and respected, except for anything that tries to draw a distinction. And Zionism drew a distinction. It said this is a unique project for the Jewish people to protect them in their homeland. And that, that, um, that's seen by these people as divisive and, and as something against 
the universal spirit of Christianity, at least by their by their lights. So, you know, we do we do a lot of work trying to educate people. You mentioned passages. This is something is a program we founded a couple of years ago to bring large numbers of Christian college students with leadership potential on nine day trips to Israel uh, for only 500 bucks. Is this sort of like the Christian uh, birthright trip? Yeah, in a way, it's sometimes called the Christian birthright, actually. But but it's 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 because of all of what we're talking about. Right. There's a whole generation of kids coming up in homes where the parents don't know that much about any of this. Uh, They go off to college. They start taking classes. They hear that Israel's bad. America's bad. Christians are bad. Right. And so a lot of what this program is trying to do, first of all, is just reconnect uh, these kids to to the origins of their faith. And it's a very powerful experience for them. We're taking about 10,000 in just a few years. Wow. And um, we think it's going to be, it's going to address some of these uh, problems that we're talking about inside the church, this, this bad tendency to favor everyone but the Jews. Well, Robert, I appreciate you joining us this morning on Middle East Forum Radio. Is there any way that we can find out more about your organization, its different partner organizations, and uh, hopefully maybe we can have you back soon to talk a little bit more? I feel like we only got halfway through the conversation today. There's a whole (laughs) lot more that that we can discuss, uh, maybe even making it a two-part interview. But um, how can we find out about Philos? Yeah, so philosproject.org is our website. Uh, obviously, we have all the social media that any other organization has. So look at us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all of that. And then for those interested in passages, this program I was just talking about, the trip for college students, that is uh, passagesisrael.org. And you'll find on that website how one goes about uh, applying for that trip and, and getting and getting on it. Obviously, coronavirus has us all on pause for now those hopefully will be picking back up uh, those you know what it's going to do it's going to make your waiting list grow larger that's the only (laughs) issue they they have to deal with robert nicholson president founder of the philos project well-educated american advocating for christian rights in the middle east and a stronger u.s israel relationship thank you for joining middle east form radio this morning thank you greg thank you and that's all for this week here on mef radio we'll be joining you next week with our guest that will be announced on Friday at emmyforum.org. Have a great day, everybody.